So this morning we are at the uh, end of our journey as we've been going through uh, John's first epistle. We've been going through this for about uh, three or four months now. Uh, and there has been a lot that John has written about regarding the nature of Christ, uh, regarding his humanity, regarding his deity, um, regarding his work on the cross, right? He is addressing a lot of the issues that were uh, in question in the minds of the people in the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, was causing all kinds of division and split. And, and so John brings some clarity uh, to uh, the, the nature of Christ and the, and the um, highlights the importance of, uh, of embracing a, uh, or living a life that reflects the Christ we say that we love. Um, ultimately, what John is doing is he's, he's, create, he's drawing a, a, creating a, a distinction between those who, who attend church and those who are the church. And he does that uh, all throughout his epistle. He provides some metrics on helping those who are listening to discover uh, whether they have, the, uh, uh, whether they're putting their trust and their assurance in the right things or not. And so John lays out some metrics, right? He, pre- he creates some, um, some clarity and, and, and some comfort as well for the church because there was, again, there was so much misinformation that was going on in the church. And so John really kind of um, lays out with crystal clarity what a disciple of Jesus looks like, right? How what we say we believe ought to be lived out in our lives. And so he presents these metrics, ways of of knowing um, that what we say is in fact what we believe because our actions will always reveal what we believe. And so John presents some some key things throughout uh, this epistle. now, our actions, to be very clear, our actions are not what reconcile us back to God. We know that, right? It's not by works that we have been saved, right? But it's by the work of, of Christ that we are saved. And so our actions are not what reconciles us back to God, but our actions communicate the fact that we've been reconciled back to God. And it's this that John lays out really clear uh, throughout his text. This morning, as we come to our, our, our closing verses, uh, John will um, again reiterate five ways that I see uh, of knowing that we have eternal life. That was the, the question that John is seeking to um, answer for those who were reading this epistle. Uh, he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. Right? And so it's not God's desire for people to hope and just wonder that they got it right. Um, God doesn't, we don't need to guess and gamble with our eternal life. These things were written. I like what Brent, the question that Brent asked the woman at the hotel when he said, do you know if you were to die today that you'd be with Jesus? And oftentimes people will say, I'm not really that sure. I don't know. You really can't know. Yes, you can know. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And so God wants us to have that confidence and that assurance of eternal life. And John um, lays out for us in this epistle ways of us knowing. Um, And I want us to look at that this morning through two lenses. 
Um, certainly and obviously as a metric in determining whether we have eternal life. I mean, if you're here this morning and, and you're just not sure, um, then this message is for you, right? We want you to be able to know that you know that you know that, that if your heart were to stop beating, you'd be in the presence of Jesus, right? Um, maybe you're, you're listening online or you're watching by TV and you're, you're kind of just you're just kind of checking out this, this Christianity thing and you're just not sure. Well, John kind of lays out for us ways in which we can know. And so I want you to kind of listen to this text this morning through that lens, but also for those who uh, are here that you've, you've, you've placed your trust in Christ. You, you know that you're a believer. You, you know you've, you've crossed over the line and, and you're his disciple. And I want you to hear this this morning as a blessing and, and an opportunity to enjoy the benefits that come with eternal life, right? These assurances that we have ought to give us great confidence and assurance uh, as followers of Christ. And so um, let's take a look this morning. Uh, we left off last week in uh, 1 John chapter 5 in verse 14. So we're going to pick up uh, where we left off. And uh, we're going to look at five things in this upcoming text that John will point to to help us discover whether we have eternal life or and help us to appreciate and enjoy the blessing of having eternal life as well. Look with me in verse 14. John says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The first thing that John highlights here is a great metric in knowing that we are in Christ is the confidence that we have in prayer, the confidence that we have in going to the Father. The first way of knowing we have eternal life is through confidence in prayer. John says this, he assures us that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. Isn't that great news? That we are not just casting words out into space and hoping they land on ears that are willing to listen. John says, no, we have this confidence of knowing that everything that we ask according to God's will, he hears us. Now, sadly, this passage has been misinterpreted by so many, so many to suggest that if we ask anything that we want... God is obligated to get it to us. He says right here, right, that, that if we ask it, we're going to get it. But the distinction that John so clearly makes here is, here is that, that, that if we ask what? According to his will. According to his will. Here's the clear, here, here's the deal. Asking according to the will of God requires us to, to know the heart of God. To ask according to the will of God requires us to know the ways of God, right? If I'm asking according to the will, I'm not going to ask God to give me things that are going to elevate me. I'm going to ask God to do things or respond to things that are going to, to, to elevate Jesus in the world around us, right? That are going to glorify God, right? And so what we are to do is we are to ask according to his will. One of the things I... I can't stand about the, the word faith movement, right? This idea that, well, if, you, know, if, it's in the, you, know, if you, just, you just gotta name it and claim it, and God's obligated by his word, he's gotta do like what you tell him to do. 
And it's this idea that like God is a genie in a bottle and if you, if you just rub him the right way, you get your three wishes. And the danger of that theology, while it goes, there's, I can go forever, the, the biggest problem with that is it puts us at the center of what God must do. And life is not about us. Our life is about the glory of God. And so as we are praying, what we ought to be praying are for ways to bring glory to God. Prayer is all about relationship, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're not approaching a God who is unwilling or uncaring or unknowing as to what your needs are. And you're praying, you're not, you're not twisting the arm of a, of a reluctant father who's trying to withhold his best from you. You don't have to beg God, oh, please, please, please. No, we can ask our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants to give good things to his children. You're not approaching a reluctant father, just the opposite. When you're praying, you're presenting yourself before a loving and caring, all-knowing father who is, give, who is committed to give you all that he knows is best for you. All that he knows is best for you. So prayer is not getting God to align his will with mine. You know, if we get real honest, then we don't need to raise our hands and declare it with everybody, but the reality is oftentimes that's what prayer is. God, here's what you need to do, and here's when you need to do it. And God laughs. How many are thankful God has not answered every question, every request that you have made in the timing that you have made it? Right? We are so bound by time. We are so limited in our understanding. But God, who is omniscient, meaning he knows everything there is to know about everything, will respond in accordance with his character and his will and his heart for his people. And so prayer is not about getting God to align his will with ours, but just the opposite, prayer is about getting me to align my will with God's will. That's what prayer is. It's about me getting the heart of God so I would know how God wants me to navigate. The confidence that we have in prayer is not connected to an outcome. The confidence that we have in prayer is connected to a person. Because approaching God is relational. It's not ritual. It's relational. And so John writes about this, this confidence that we can have in approaching God. An unbeliever cannot have that. There's that there is not that internal confidence that a, that, 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 a, that a believer has in being able to approach God in prayer. And so the confidence that we have, again, it's not connected to an outcome. It's, the confidence we have is because we're coming to our Father to our daddy, Abba Father, Daddy God. You know, in the Old Testament, that's not the way it was. The priest didn't just come boldly to the throne of grace before approaching the Holy Holies, which, by the way, only the priest was able to do that. The people of God were dependent upon the priest to go before God on their behalf. So not everybody had the luxury of like what we have now, where we can come into the presence of God, speak to our Father, and come boldly like a child who can come and bust in the doors of his parents. That wasn't the case in the Old Testament. 
The people had to rely upon the priest and the priest didn't just bust on in. There were certain things, certain requirements that a priest had to ensure before he approached the presence of God. Just a couple of those things. A priest would need to perform a ritualistic cleansing of himself. The priests had to wash their hands and their bodies thoroughly over and over again, had to put on clean garments. Why? Why? To symbolize their, their purity and their, their consecration for serving and coming into the presence of God. This was, the, this was done to the emphasize the importance of approaching God in a state of cleanliness and holiness. And so before a priest could enter into the presence of God, he had to clean up his own act. Right, he had to thoroughly wash himself down, thoroughly get the right kind of clothes. He had to recognize that his outward appearance needed to be clean and pure as he approached the holiness of God. Second thing he had to do is a priest was required to offer sacrifices. The priest had to offer specific sacrifices, including burnt offerings and sin offerings and incense to, why? To atone for the sins of himself as well as for the sins of the people. These sacrifices were meant to symbolize the need for forgiveness and, and the covering of sin before entering into God's presence. And let me tell you something. When the priest would enter in and slaughter the animals and shed it, but it was a gruesome time. It was a bloody sacrifice. But it communicated the significance and the disdain that God had towards sin. Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says in Leviticus, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the priest would have to do this ritualistic cleansing and offer up this, these sacrifices for himself and then for the people. Third thing they'd have to do is they'd have to follow very strict protocols. They'd have to follow various protocols and rituals such as the proper use of incense the wearing of specific garments and the adherence to specific procedures that were all outlined in the Mosaic Law. These protocols were meant to ensure reverence and respect in approaching the Holy of Holies, recognizing the holiness and, and the majesty of God's presence. You didn't just burst in. You prepared yourself. You recognized whose presence you were coming in. One of the things that we're really lacking in our day today is a real reverence for God. Tradition tells us, and I don't know, I can't point to a passage of scripture, but tradition has held that oftentimes the priests were required to put a bell on their foot and, 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 and have a long rope that went from their foot all the way out the door. So as they would enter into the Holy of Holies, the people would hear the ringing of the bell. But if they heard the ringing of the bell, that meant he stopped walking, which might have meant that he was not prepared to be in the presence of God and he was struck dead. And they drag him on out. Could you imagine being the priest walking in going, I hope I did it all right. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. It's ringing, it's ringing, right? What an incredible set of hoops, set of requirements 
that the priests had to do to, to enter into the, the presence of God. And yet Christ, our high priest, was perfectly clean. There was no ritualistic cleansing necessary because he was sinless. He was our perfect sacrifice. Therefore, there was no need for any other to shed blood. He fulfilled every part of the law and he presented himself on our behalf before the Father as our perfect sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. That's why the author of Hebrews writes something that was unheard of in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, because Christ, our Passover lamb, Christ, our high priest, Christ, the one who shed his blood on our behalf, he, we are invited, it says in, in Hebrews chapter four and verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. It used to be just the priest, but now the writer of Hebrews says, now let us with confidence draw near. Why can we approach God without the cleansing of our clothes and our bodies and, and all these other things that everybody was required to because Christ went in and fulfilled all of the requirements of a holy God. And because of that, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that you had an area of sin in your life that you needed to repent to God for? You don't have to imagine that hard, right? Here's the part that I want you to imagine now. Imagine you needed to go before God shedding the blood of an animal, wearing the right garments, going through all the ritual that the priest had to go through. And imagine that you went in there and there was a, the, 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 the scene is bloody and it's, it's chaotic and it, it, it's loud and it's, it's gruesome. But as you come, it, it's a reminder of how disgusting and brutal and gruesome sin is. And as you enter into the presence of God and you're shedding the blood, imagine that that's what it took. Could you imagine the confidence you might walk away with afterwards thinking, well, I did everything that was necessary. I must really be forgiven. Well, you know what? It's no less than when we come before God and we confess our sins, the scripture says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Why? Because the father looks at what the son has done. He shed his blood. He perfected, he, he, he presented himself as the perfect sacrifice. And so when you and me enter into the presence of God, we don't just arbitrarily enter in and God's like, oh yeah, that's all good. No, it's directly connected to the sacrifice of the son. And listen, we need to hold that moment in reverence. And to the degree that we do that is the degree that we won't take sin lightly when we really recognize all that Christ did so that we can come into the presence of God, we won't take sin so lightly. And so for the, for the child of God, we have this confidence, as John says, in coming to him in prayer. Our Father, who accepts us, who loves us, and who hears the cry of his children. It's the confidence that comes with eternal life. Let's continue. Verse 16. 
Yeah, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, there's a lot of directions we can go in this text this morning, and I just want to kind of focus on the bigger picture and the bigger context of what John is saying here. The big picture, again, here's how we, here's how we love one another. It's the second point. Here's how we love one another. You see, we've seen all throughout the text of John's appeal to the church, it, it, it is to love one another, right? And how we love one another, it's a reflection of how we love God. And in the same way that we see how God uphold, how, how John upholds the, the confidence that we have in coming to God in prayer, he highlights the importance of loving others by interceding for fellow believers who are caught in sin. He says, look, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Pray for him. Pray for him. What John is highlighting is the importance of praying for a brother and a sister who is committing sin. How we respond to that person. We are not to alienate, we are not to embarrass or ostracize one another, but Rather, we are to pray for them. We are to encourage them to, to turn to God in repentance and walk in obedience is what we are called to do. It saddens me to see so many people enjoying pointing out the failures of others. Sadly, more time is spent exposing others than genuinely praying for their repentance. And it's just the opposite of what the scripture calls us to do. We aren't to ignore things, but we are to pray for them. Great indica- indication of a safe, or an unsafe person, not unsaved, but unsafe person, is someone who loves to expose everybody. Oftentimes it's done to elevate themselves because of their own pride and arrogance. And what John says to us, what the scripture says to us, is we need to pray for that one. Pray for that one. Paul will say this in Galatians chapter six and in verse one, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. And then he says, look, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's not one one person in this room who's incapable of sinning. There's not one person in this room that's incapable of not being tempted in an area and falling into sin. And so what, what, what Paul says is, listen, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, you who truly have their best interest in mind. And while you're doing that, be aware of your own frailties, he says. Keep watch for yourself, lest you also be tempted. Right? And so we see here that, that obviously we, we, we see the obviously we, confidence in prayer is, is a big piece. We also see the importance of, of loving one another and, and making sure that our love is seen even in their failures, that we are reaching out to them and covering them in prayer. 
Third thing we see John, that John will highlight here is living lives of obedience. Living lives of obedience. He, he touches on this earlier on is in the chapter as well. Look at with me at verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, I don't think we need to go too deep dive into what the author is saying here. Obviously, what he's highlighting is the importance of living lives of obedience. That he lays it out very clearly. We know that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, right? We, we're not making excuses for our sin. We are, we are, not, we, we are not sinless, but we should be sinning less, right? That's the goal here. We're never going to get on this side of eternity. We'll never get to the point where we are, where we are sinless. But I pray to God that with every day, I am sinning less and less than I did the day before. And, that's, and, that's, and I think we need to have a, a healthy perspective on that, right? Where we don't give each other an out and just say, well, I think just do what you got to do. No. We need, we need to be striving. We need to be pursuing lives of obedience. The author is very aware that the goal is not sinlessness. Remember what he said in chapter two and verse one, he said, my children, I write these things that you might not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that great news? Right? It's like, hey, you don't get a pass, right? I'm not, I'm not condoning this, but knowing your frame, knowing your frailty, you're going to sin. And so when you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, one who's gone on ahead of you and paved the way for your forgiveness. In our text, he's highlighting the one who isn't struggling with sin. All right, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the one who's not, obviously John knows that we're gonna struggle with sin. What he's referring to are the people who aren't struggling at all with sin. They're just not trying they're just sinning, right? No struggle at all. They just keep on sinning. He says earlier on in, verse, in chapter three and verse nine, he says, look, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You see, there's clear, there's clear distinctions that are being made here. Practice of sinning, of sinning is very different than a moment where we sin. Right? And so we, we don't want to get legalistic and, 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 and throw on all kinds of uh, a pharisaical guilt and shame on people. Like, well, if you, if you sinned, then this applies. You know, the reality is we've all sinned. What John is highlighting is those who make a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's uh, God seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Remember when we talked about that text? The beauty of that is, as believers in Jesus Christ, the seed of God, the Holy Spirit, is within us. And because the Holy Spirit of God is within us, we can't keep on sinning. There's just, uh, we, it, it, nothing on the inside will allow us to continue to live that life of sin. And if a person is not feeling that tension, then the scripture would say, well, then obviously you don't have the life of God in you. And you need to get the life of God in you by repenting and trusting in Christ for your salvation. For the Christian, it ought to raise a sense of encouragement. 
I mean, what, 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 what should this create in us right now, right? Uh, not guilt and shame, that's, that, that's not the goal here. I, I'm not looking to create that, but what I, what I pray, I pray you experience the same thing that I'm experiencing is this awareness that you know, I've got some stuff in my life that I, I, do, I, wanna, I wanna please God with every area of my life, and I'm not there yet. Right? I still got some stuff I'm working through. Am I the only one in the room? Right? We're working through this stuff. And so the reality of it is, I don't want to, I don't want to use that as an excuse to not pursue God. I want to use that to motivate me to realize that God, I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He's going to complete this work in me. And so what it ought to do is create an awareness. And here's the good news, ready? I don't have to keep on sinning. That's, man, listen, in my flesh, I want to sin, right? I mean, that's, that's just the reality, right? But in my spirit, I don't want to sin. And here's the good news. I don't have to sin. No Christian has ever has to sin. And it's not because you have good willpower. That's not gonna work. But there's a transformative work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the power of sin has been broken over our lives. Look what he says in verse 19, speaking of the world. He says, the world lies in the power and the control of the evil one. That's the, the world's stuck, man. They, they are under the power of sin. They are under the control of the evil one. They are gonna keep on sinning, but that's not you. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans chapter six, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live any longer there in it? You see, here's the beauty of it. When I embrace Christ, the power of sin has been broken over my life. Therefore, I don't have to sin. I don't have to. And you see, that's the good news of this text. What John is highlighting is for those who are on the outside, hey, get on the inside. And for those who are on the inside, here's the word of encouragement. You don't have to keep on sinning. He's gonna continue to work in you and through you. And you might not be happy fully where you are today, but you keep pressing into Jesus. And you know what? Day by day, you're gonna be changing and transforming more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 20. Our fourth point is this, that those who have eternal life love the, tr the truth. Love the truth. The world does not love the truth, folks. I mean, we are in a culture right now that twists truth, distorts truth, redefines truth, avoids truth, wants nothing at all to do with the truth. But the child of God loves the truth. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come, look, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. Who? In his Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. I love what he says here. Look, he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. He has opened the eyes of our understanding. He has made us alive in Jesus Christ and so we can appreciate and know what truth is. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. It's interesting, just in this, just in this one verse, we see five things that, that John will highlight here. We know this because he's given us understanding of what the truth is, as well as a sincere love 
for the truth. And he highlights five things here. He talks about the, the way that we may know him who is truth, right? And I love this. He says, and we are not, not only do we know him who is truth, but look, we are in him who is truth, right? We are in union with Christ. Wow. That's something that our minds can't fully grasp. We are hidden with, with, Christ, hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with God in Christ. We are in him. We see that Jesus is the truth. He, he's echoing the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is truth, and so to love truth is to, to love Jesus. Why? Because he is the true God. And not only is he truth, but he also is eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, it all comes back to Jesus and who Christ is. You see, what differentiates the lover, a lover of truth and a lover of self is seen on how we answer these two questions that I'm going to raise to you this morning. If, if, if you haven't heard anything I said this morning, you just want to kind of get it down to like, where am I really at in my walk with God, my discovery of God, in my search for God, whatever kind of thing you're doing with God right now, right? Again, whether you're here, watching online, or on TV, Here's two questions that every Christian needs to be, or every person needs to be able to answer. Number one, what does the Bible say about a given subject? Because the Bible is truth, right? So it's the standard. What Tony says about the given subject really doesn't matter a thing. What popular opinion is, what the community says, what our culture says, really doesn't matter because it changes like the stock market. And so on any given subject, we need to know what does the Bible say about forgiveness. You say, I don't want to forgive him. I don't want to forgive her. What does the Bible say about forgiveness? I don't want to extend mercy. What does the Bible say about extending mercy, right? What does the Bible say about extending love? What does the Bible say about serving those who are less fortunate than you? Not how you feel about it, how do, what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about bringing our tithes and our offerings into the storehouse? I, I don't want to hear about that. It doesn't matter what I think about. What does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about purity? <laughs> Come on, Pastor, it's 2023. Like, we, we need to, no. What does the Bible say about these things? If I've not raised the awareness in your heart and your mind of the importance of knowing the word of God, I have failed you as a pastor. The most important thing that you can know as a child of God is what the scripture has to say. And once we, because once we understand what the scripture says, then and only then are we able to rightly answer this next question. Will I obey it? Here's what the scripture says. Will I obey it? A lover of truth says, yes, I'll obey it. A lover of self is gonna say, no, I won't obey it. Now, let me just be really clear here. There are times that your pastor knows what's the right thing to do. And my attitude rises to the surface and screams louder than what I know to be the right thing. And so I'm not talking about those moments, right? We're talking about the practices, the lifestyles, right? The ongoing 
day-to-day decisions that we make in our lives. What does the scripture say about this? And how am I going to respond? Am I going to obey it? It's about our direction, as you oftentimes hear me say, not about our perfection. And again, we're looking to be sinning less on our way to sinlessness and glory. Amen? To do anything else, because ultimately, it's the only response that God, obedience is the only response that's acceptable to God. To do anything else is to allow something to get in the way of what God wants. And anything that gets in the way of my relationship with God or my pursuit of God, anything that gets between me and Jesus, you know what we call that? It's an idol. It's an idol. Anything that I allow to get in the way between my pursuit of Jesus is an idol. And that's John's last parting words to the church in this epistle. And it's our fifth point this morning keeping yourselves from idols. It sounds like a very disconnected like thought. Like it was almost like John gets done writing. He's like, whoa, 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 by the way, keep yourselves from idols. No, it wasn't like he didn't just like throw that in as a PS. What John is doing is he's high, he's so, this idea of keeping ourselves from idols is so connected to everything else he has said because here's the thing, anything that we allow in the, in the, in the way between me and Jesus is an idol. And John concludes his letter by warning believers to keep themselves from idols. Now listen, idolatry is not limited to this physical object that we, we pray to. That's not the idea of what idolatry is. It encompasses anything that takes precedence over our love and our devotion to God. And the reality of it is, most people do not have a problem with bad idols things that they know they shouldn't be doing. Usually it's, it's the good stuff that gets in the way. It's our job. It's our hobby. It's our children. It's our spouse. It's our relationships. It's our money. None, none of these things are evil or wrong in and of themselves. But the moment we allow them to get in the way of our pursuit of Jesus, we have then put an improper boundary around it and it becomes an idol, it becomes more important. And what God wants us to do is to pull it out of the path from me to Jesus and put it all in its proper perspective. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. You're saying, wait a minute, Pastor, you're saying to me I'm not supposed to love my wife and my kids and go to my job? That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is this. If you love your wife more than you love Jesus, if you love your kids more than you love Jesus, or your job more than you love Jesus, then it's become an idol. You say, well, nobody would say that. Right, but our lifestyles, does it get communicated through our lifestyles? Do our priorities communicate the value of Jesus or the value of these other things? And that's why John ends it with a truth bomb. It's like, hey, by the way, keep yourselves from idols. So here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus is my number one priority, I'll be a better husband. When, I'm, when Jesus is my number one priority, I'll be a better employee. I'll be a better employer. I'll be a better whatever that, you, that, that I'm putting my, my time and energy into. When Jesus is first, everything else finds its rightly play, rightful place and I'm able to steward my influence in those things out of an overflow of what Jesus is doing in and through my life. 
John had to end with the truth bomb and so did I. We've covered a lot of subject in this subject matter in these last three or four months. Some of it was very encouraging. Some of it was very uncomfortable. I heard someone say once that the word of God comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. I pray that we've allowed the word to do that in our hearts together. I'm thankful for the miraculous preservation of the word of God so we can know the heart and mind of God so we might apply that to our lives and honor him in how we live our lives as the disciples of Jesus. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And so that wraps up and concludes our study through 1 John. I pray that you'll jump back in and allow the Holy Spirit to do and bring you further than I ever could in our short time together. Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, as you say in your word. I pray, God, that we would hold in proper tension the things that are being um, presented before us so that we would not walk in guilt and shame, that's not your desire, but that we would walk in obedience and out of love for you, honor you with all the things in our lives. Thank you for this time that we've had to saturate into this, in this, into this epistle. And I pray, God, that it would bring forth fruit in each and every one of our lives to the glory and majesty of Jesus. Amen. Amen.